It didn't take long. Uh, People from nearly every generation, male and female, single and married, urban and rural, working and retired, uh, people from nearly every single uh, category of demographics that you could think of, they've now tried it. Online grocery shopping. (laughs) Online grocery shopping. It's been around for a while, but it really started in 2020. It took off, right? It went strong throughout 2021. It's still going in 2022 like never before. And and many people who, if not for the pandemic, uh, may have never tried it, they're now uh, regularly shopping for their groceries online. I know not everyone does it, and some of you are like, pshh. Those online grocery shoppers. I see your smirks. I know, I know where you're coming from. And I know you're looking at me thinking, oh, but Jake does that. And then as soon as you think that, you're like, well, actually, he probably doesn't do it. But I bet his wife does, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. But yes, people are now ordering groceries online. And they're having them sent directly to their door or going and picking them up via curbside pickup. And that used to not even be a phrase in our vernacular. And now uh, curbside pickup, I mean, it's, it's everything. It's, you can pull up to Walgreens, send a text message, and they'll bring you a little individual size of potato chips. Curbside pickup is just a regular thing now. Now, this all started with the fear of going into the stores and catching the virus, right? Well, now it continues uh, out of fear of having to go into the store and actually do the work and shop for yourself, right? It's it's strong, but the reason has changed, it seems like. There's a problem with shopping for your groceries online. And those of you who do it regularly, which I know you're shamed right now, but, but be proud. It's okay. Those of you who are regulars, you know exactly what I'm about to say is the problem, right? The sermon title probably helps, doesn't it? No, it's not up there. It's in your bulletin. Those of you that still use the bulletin, it's in there, okay? Okay, you know what the problem is. Substitutions, right? Those dreaded substitutions. They get you every time. You see, sometimes the grocery store doesn't have what you want. You you wanted the cherry-flavored Luden's cough drops, and they didn't have them. They were out of stock, right? You wanted uh, two of the the, the small Campbell's chicken noodle soup cans. What are they, 10 and three-quarter ounce or something like that? Yes, I went to the cupboard this past week to check that, okay? I think that's correct, okay? Um, I wouldn't have known otherwise, but I, I think my memory serves me there. You wanted two of those small cans. They didn't have them, Right? Or, or often, uh, you, I know Randy and I are on the same page here. We want the latest, greatest seasonal treat from those blessed folks at Hostess. Out of stock. Don't have them. Now, if I'm honest, I don't think they're out of stock nearly as often as they say they are. I, I don't think that's true. I have a theory that sometimes the, the little grocer boy or gal uh, just, just doesn't know where it's located. And so they say they're out of stock. Or they've already been to that end of the store and they don't want to go back. You know, they should have got it when they were over there and they don't want to walk all the way back over there so they're out of stock, right? Or they go by an end cap and like, oh, that's yellow and cheese. I'll just put that in there and say we're out of stock of the Mexican Velveeta. You know, exactly what you wanted. They're out of stock. I'm sorry, we substituted this, right? Look, on numerous occasions, Kathy has rolled up to pick up the online order. Yeah, yeah, we do it, Okay. <laughs> pulled up to get the online order, and as they are loading the groceries into the back of the van, I'm sitting there doing whatever it is that I'm doing, and she goes into the store to get the out-of-stock item, purchases it, and brings it back to the van. It's there. They, they, they missed it. It wasn't in stock, right? And so, look, I love you, Kroger, but I'm on to your little game. I, I, I know what they're doing. 
The real problem, though, is not just being out of stock. It's the substitutions. It's when you authorize the store to make substitutions on your behalf. Now, sometimes it can work out okay, you know. If you like craft, but you always buy Kroger, well, sometimes they're out of the store brand, and they'll give you the name brand. You're like, okay, great. Sometimes you want seedless grapes, and they give you the nasty ones with seeds in them. Okay, it doesn't always work out for your benefit. Sometimes you want salting crackers. They give you oyster crackers instead. And some of you are probably thinking, look, when I order what I want, I want what I want, and I don't want any substitutions. I wouldn't be okay with those. But what about, what about Frank? Frank ordered a canister of sea salt and got sandpaper. These are real stories, okay? Um, John ordered a bag of assorted candies and got a bath mat. I had to Google what a bath mat was. Real story. Sandra ordered a, a gingerbread house kit around Christmas time for her and the grandkids. She got a fajita dinner kit. <laughs> Nothing says Christmas time like spicy Mexican food, I guess. But an online shopper named Karen may have gotten the worst substitution ever. She ordered a bundle of carrots, got a bundle of cigars. Personally, I think it's best to just mark no substitutions allowed. Uh, this morning in our message series of on the book of Colossians, this letter written from Paul uh, to the Christians in Colossae. As we continue on, I want to bring you a message this morning called No Substitutions Allowed. I I'm calling this message No Substitutions Allowed because in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, we're going to see that Paul commanded these uh, Christians in Colossae to reject to reject what the world around them was offering to them uh, in competition with or uh, in replacement of or in addition to Christ. And whether you recognize it or not, we are still surrounded by and prone to surrendering our minds to ideas and philosophies and systems of thought that compete with Christ. We're still prone to that. It happens all the time, more than you may even recognize. So open your Bibles up to Colossians chapter 2 with me again this week, and we're going to be uh, digging in, beginning at verse 8 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, Paul writes these words. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. Now this single verse gives us Paul's basis for everything he's going to say between right now and verse 15. Everything rides on what he's just said right here. This is Paul's main point, if you want to put it that way. This is the command that he gives, and everything else are reasons for the command. Okay, this is the basis. Don't be taken captive. That's the, the main point here. That's the main lesson of this, this whole message, really. Don't be taken captive. Now, when Paul says, don't be taken captive, when he tells the Colossians this, um, he's using words that uh, describe a battle that's been lost. And they, the Colossians, are the spoils. They are the prize that has been won. They are the plunder that has been taken and is being led away as captive. That's the, the picture that he's creating with the words that he uses here. That's one of the greatest fears of any citizen of any nation, right? A, a foreign army coming in and taking you captive, becoming spoils of war. That's one of the greatest fears we could possibly have. 
But Paul isn't talking about a foreign army coming in with swords or guns and bombs like they would today. That's not what he's talking about. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. We fear the, the swords and the guns and the bombs from time to time, but the greatest threat that come, it, it comes from a, a more subtle armory. The greatest threat that we face, it comes from a much more uh, subtle method, and it's that philosophy. We know that in the first century, the word philosophy was used to describe uh, any elaborate system of thought or moral discipline. So it could be religious, it could be secular, or anywhere in between. If it was an organized way of thinking about something, it could be referred to as a philosophy. So when Paul throws out this word, know that that's what he's talking about. That's what he's referring to. That's what he could be referring to, right? Paul commands them not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception, he says. So remember the persuasive argument uh, from, from last week when he used that term? It was in verse four, we talked about it last week. Paul wanted the Colossians to not be deluded by persuasive argument, he said in verse four last week. He, he doesn't want them to be taken captive by philosophy, right? That, that's a persuasive argument. People make persuasive arguments to try to get people to believe these things, to be taken captive by philosophies, different views and disciplines, and empty deception, he says, right? This stuff is made to sound fulfilling. It's made to sound enriching. It's made to sound rewarding and satisfying, but it's not because it doesn't deliver on any of the promises that it, that it throws out there. It doesn't deliver. None of, that, none of it manifests, right? And so it's empty deception, right? They're not just deceiving you into taking what they have to offer. They're deceiving you into taking something that has no substance. It doesn't actually deliver on what it promises to give you. And while we know with some confidence what, what Paul's probably hammering away at, we, we probably know that Paul has a particular philosophy in mind here. He actually gives the Colossians just, just some general parameters. J just avoid things that fall under these categories. Avoid things that look like this. Just stay away. Here are some surefire signs that you need to run from this philosophy if it meets this criteria. So first of all, they had to reject philosophy that is according to the tradition of men. You see it here in this verse? need to reject philosophy that's according to the tradition of men. Now, traditions are not altogether bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul again is writing here and he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And in 2 Thessalonians, again, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. There were some traditions that had uh, God as their source. They were delivered by the apostles to the people, but God was the source of those traditions. Obviously, those traditions were to be kept, were to be observed, but the warning here for the Colossians was to stay away from traditions that had men as their source. Now, this would be the equivalent of choosing the wisdom of man over the wisdom of God. That would not be wise, would it? Paul also says uh, in our text here that the Colossians are to reject philosophy that is according to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world. Uh, false religions, 
philosophies, traditions, uh, other systems of thought, they are based on the elementary principles of the world. They're based on things that are elementary compared to uh, that which comes from God. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20 says this. Paul says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. And then, of course, there's Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, uh, where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are not based on the elementary principles of this world. I can tell you that much. His ways are not of this world. He is not of this world. If he was, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be worthy of worship. So Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, and here's where it really hits home, rather than according to Christ. Rather than according to Christ. This is the the underlying uh, basis of everything he's saying to stay away from, things that are not according to Christ. Stay away from them. This is the overarching principle of this verse. If it isn't in accord with Christ, if it isn't in harmony with his nature and his word, then it is a bad substitute. And when salvation is on the line, there are no substitutions allowed. We need to reject them. And that is why Paul insisted that the Colossians see to it. He uses those words, see to it, that no one takes you captive by uh, some worthless substitute uh, in place of Christ. Now, how many worthless substitutes are there in the world today? Anybody, anybody check on that recently? Anybody got the current numbers? Yeah, me neither. There's a lot of them. We could talk about all the denominations in the world around us kind of muddying the waters. They're created by men based on traditions of men. We could talk about the, the cults that, that um, they worship a man, but they claim a belief in Christ. And so they say, well, we believe in Christ, so we are Christians. And they really kind of muddy the water. We could talk about false religions that don't even honor God, don't even honor the one true God, and don't even accept Christ a, a, as his son. But I'm not sure that those, in fact, I'm pretty confident, those are not the greatest threats to, to you and I, those of us sitting in this room this morning. I think our greatest threats are things like movie and television culture, obsession with politics, uh, worshiping the news, work and career priorities being placed above the church, the philosophy of personal comfort, the religion of personal happiness, the compulsive need to fit in with the world while being completely desensitized to any pressure to fit in with the church culture. The parental strategy of placing your your children's desires above anything else. We could go on and on, but the point is, the world has done more than just creep into the church a little bit. Every single one of these systems of thought, every single one of these vain philosophies, each of these traditions of men are deeply embedded in the church today. I'm sorry to have to deliver the bad news, but it's the truth. These things are deeply embedded in the church. We look a lot worse from the outside than we know. And it's going to hurt to rip that band-aid off. 
It's going to be painful to remove these things from our lives, but it's a command. We must do it. You and I must do it. Brothers and sisters, see to it that you are not taken captive by these kinds of things. Instead, make Christ the true focal point of your life because as Paul says in verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, he is everything we need. He's got it all. <laughs> is there anything that we need that doesn't come from God? Is there, is there anything good that can come into our lives whose source is not God? James 1.17 says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no, shifting, no variation or shifting shadow. He, God, is everything we need. I think we probably already knew that. Well, Remember, notice that Paul writes here in verse 9 of our text that it's in Christ, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. That, that says Jesus is God. Not just part God either. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Deity just means the state of being God. That's, that's what deity means. And Paul could have just said, in him, deity dwells in bodily form, right? But he said all the fullness all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The complete measure of who God truly is, what God truly is, the way God is supposed to be in reality. Everything that makes God, God is what he's saying here. All the fullness dwells in the man, Christ Jesus, in bodily form. And notice that it's not previously dwelt. Okay, our English translation does a, a pretty decent job of showing that this is a current thing. This is a, a always and forever kind of thing, right? Uh, it's not previously dwelt. It still dwells. All the fullness of deity still dwells in Jesus, in his body right now. That fullness of deity was in him on earth, okay? Uh, John chapter 1 does a great job, the first 14 verses of really laying that out for us, right? Uh, clothed in a human body at that time, and now all the fullness is still in him in bodily form, albeit a glorified body at this time, sitting at the right hand of the Father right now as we speak. Still, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. As the Colossians were to see to it that no one took them captive uh, by uh, philosophy, through philosophy, and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, uh, according to the elementary principles of this world rather than according to Christ, Paul wanted them to remember that Christ, whom they served, was God in bodily form. Don't second guess him. Uh, don't, don't think that there's more out there to be had. He, he is God. And he wasn't just a, a body that was like God. He wasn't a man who was very godly. He wasn't even half God, half man. They were following God in bodily form. This was God clothed in a human body. That's who they were following. That ought to go a long way in helping them uh, to stay the course and to reject any vain philosophy that tried to add to or tried to detract from, compete with, uh, be added to or substituted for. They, that should have gone a long way to help them with that. There, there's no competition, right? Ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14 says the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person, right? Right? 
And verse 14 says, for God, make sure you understand what this is saying in verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. For every soul who has ever walked this earth, who is currently walking this earth, or who will ever walk this earth, it's all about God. What you, you may say, well, my life isn't all about God. It doesn't matter. What your life is all about is God. Now, if you're doing a bad job of that, well, that's on you, and that's between you and God to, to sort out, and we're all here to help, but your life, whether you recognize it, and whether you're living it that way or not, it's all about God. That's what it's all about. It's all about recognizing him as God and honoring him as God, and I think we can all do a better job. So don't be afraid to ask off work so that you can be with your family in Christ and honor God. Don't be afraid to tell your kids no so that God will be honored in your home. Don't be afraid to turn off the TV so that God will be honored in your heart and in your mind. Don't be afraid to set the fear of the world aside so that God will be honored by your courage and your trust and your faith. Don't be afraid to proclaim Christ and Him crucified so that God will be honored with your lips. Don't be afraid to give generously to others who are in need so that God will be honored with your, your generosity and your, your good stewardship and your trust in him. Don't be afraid to put down whatever happens to be in your hand. It depends on what generation you're from, but something's probably in your hand. Put it down, read God's word out loud so that, that God will be honored by you listening to him for once. Don't be afraid to face life's most difficult circumstances with joy and thanksgiving so that God will be honored by your faith. Don't be afraid to upend your entire current way of living so that God will be honored by your separation. You're, you're actually living out, being called out from this world. Don't be afraid to find a new job so that God will be uh, honored by your, separate, or by your, um, your priorities, by, by stepping away from things that maybe you're not supposed to be involved in. Don't be afraid to get a different house or a different car so that you can make some financial room in your life and, and you can honor him with your stewardship. Don't be afraid to find a way, regardless of cost, to flip your schedule completely upside down so that God is before all things rather than after all things. Only one thing matters. If any of that sounded extreme or sounded like, ooh, I feel like he's talking about me. Okay, I'm talking about me. If it hits you, okay. <laughs> one thing matters, and that's the Lord your God. Only one thing. So don't be deceived by empty philosophies. Don't accept substitutes into your life that are, according, or that, that are not according to Christ because in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is everything that we need. Everything. Paul goes on to write in verses 10 through 15, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So not only is um, he everything we need, but he makes us all that we need to be. 
He makes us all we need to be. This is another reason that Paul gives for why the Colossians need to see to it that nobody takes them captive uh, by these philosophies that aren't in accord with Christ, right? Verse nine, he said, uh, after all, it's in him that all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And now in verse 10, he's saying uh, also, right? And also it is in him that you've been made complete. The Colossians didn't need to add anything to their lives because Christ made them complete. Now, when he, he says made them complete, he, he's saying every single thing that was necessary for their salvation was found in him, given by him, could only be provided by him. That's being complete. That spiritually, having everything you need for salvation. So make sure you're following the thought process here uh, as we uh, have, have finished reading through all of the text for today. Make sure you're following the, 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 the process, the, the train of thought. Paul's saying don't accept any substitutes for Christ because he is God and he should be honored in your life as God. And secondly, because he has made us complete. How did he do that? How did he make us complete? Ultimately, he did that through the cross. Now there's some other things to talk about, but ultimately he did that through the cross. In verses 13 and 14, um, there it is. Verses 13 and 14, Paul told the Colossians, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, the certificate of debt de uh, consisting of decrees against them, in my mind, the way I read this, and uh, this isn't just, um, I mean, it is a an opinion, I guess you could say, but, but I have uh, put some thought into this. I, I don't believe that in this specific portion of the Bible, in these verses, that Paul is referring uh, particularly to the law of Moses here because he's, he's writing this to Gentiles who were never uh, directly or officially under the law of Moses. And so I don't think that's specifically what he's talking about. Did that law be, get done away with? Did a new covenant come in? 100%, absolutely. But I don't think that's what he's referring to right here. Instead, to me, it seems more appropriate to take this as Paul referring to the written record of your sins and my sins. Um, Romans uh, 6.23 teaches us that the price of sin is death, right? And, and Paul says in our text that it's a debt, that something is owed, right? And then Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 uh, seems to indicate or at least show that it's possible that there is a, a, a book or a scroll of sorts that, that has our sins written down, that our sins are recorded somewhere. But the good news, whether I'm right or wrong, the good news is that Jesus made forgiveness of our transgressions possible by canceling out that debt. He went to the cross and he paid the price to, to balance those scales, right? He, he took that written record of our sins to the cross with him. And now in him, we're made complete. In him, our sins are forgiven. All our transgressions are blotted out. Romans 8.1 says there's no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Over and over, we see it especially in our text today, but over and over in the Bible, you've got to not skip over the fact that there's so many promises, so many truths that say in him, such and such and such, this happens, this happens, oh great, in him. This is not a promise for everyone. This is a promise for those who are in him. Now it's open to everyone. Anyone can come to him and be in him, but it's 
in him that these things are true. It's in him that what Jesus did takes effect in us, right? Catch that. It's in him that what Jesus did takes effect in us. So then the question is, how do we get in him? Well, look again at verses 11 and 12 with me. We're backing up just a touch here. It says, and in him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this, this separation or cutting off, this, this circumcision that he's talking about, that's done without hands, it was done as a result of baptism. That happened at baptism. It wasn't done by them. The circumcision wasn't performed by the people there uh, who, were, who were literally there baptizing. Okay? It isn't credited to the person who baptized them. Those who were buried with him in baptism and raised up with him through faith in the working of God, it says, they received this spiritual circumcision that Paul writes about in verse 11 of our text. That's when it happened. They received it. It was spiritual. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 Scripture defines for us here uh, precisely what it means when, when God's word uses a, a phrase similar to um, not made with hands or made without hands. Scripture defines it for us here. It says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Listen to this. You can't misunderstand it. It's perfect. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. That's what it means. And so this spiritual, or this circumcision is a spiritual circumcision. This circumcision of Christ is a spiritual thing. When, when what happens as a result of baptism it is all spiritual. It's not, a, it's not some work done by man to earn salvation. It is a salvation event, as people like to say. It is when you are saved. It is when this all happens. But, but if someone wants to argue and say, you know, that, that you know, oh, well, it's, you can't be saved by works and all that. Well, I'm not saved by my own works. I'm saved by the works of God here. This is a spiritual thing we're talking about. Romans 2.29 says this spiritual circumcision is done by the heart and it's performed by the Spirit. That's what that verse tells us. It's not some work of man. It's the work is being done by God. And the flesh no longer controls our body because in him we're no longer slaves to sin. That's what Romans 6 verses 5 and 6 tell us. And then verse 12 of our text plainly says that God does this work when we have faith in his power. When we step into the waters of baptism in faith. Faith in two things. Faith that, that, that he actually, it was his power, God's power, that raised Jesus from the dead. That you believe that that happened. And faith that he's going to also spiritually raise you from the dead. Raise you from spiritual death, right? Because verse 13 said, before spiritual circumcision takes place, a person is dead in their transgressions. But through his forgiveness, as a result of the working of God, we're made alive. We were dead before because of our transgressions. Now we are made alive together with Christ. If we've received this spiritual circumcision through baptism, having been made complete in him, we have no business wandering off after vain philosophies. We have no business chasing after uh, additions uh, or substitutions, right? According to the elementary principles of this world, according to the traditions of men, rather than according to Christ. So, so stay away from 
all the, the garbage that gets thrown out there that people, uh, some people think has meaning. Avoid the astrology. Avoid the fortune telling, for goodness sake. Avoid superstition, false doctrine, government worship, a, a life of gossip, filling your mind with the filth of this world. Avoid obsession with entertainment and everything else that tries to compete with or undermine the power of Christ in your life or your devotion to him. Avoid it all. Stay away from it. As a result of Jesus' death in our place, and now because God raised him from the dead, uh, through our faith-filled obedience to baptism, we're made complete in him. Do not, I'm begging you, do not, pleading with you, don't threaten that connection by going after vain philosophies, by going after uh, empty deception. Don't, don't threaten that connection by allowing yourself to be taken captive by these things that are not in accord, not in harmony with Christ. He makes us everything we need to be. So in a spiritual sense, where are you right now? Are there things in your shopping cart uh, th that you don't need, that you shouldn't have in there? Or there's a lot of Christians who are making substitutions for Christ in their lives. Making substitutions for things that are in accord with Christ in their lives. And I know what you're thinking. I would, I would jump back a little bit on that statement myself. I would say, well, no, not here. I would not substitute anything for Jesus. I know the true value of Jesus. Well, I know you know the true value of Jesus, or I, I expect that you do. But the problem, and we're all prone to this. We're all vulnerable to this. We're all, we're all weak uh, at times in this. The problem is that our lives don't tell that story. Right? We know that truth, but our lives, we're living like that's not the case. Our lives show that hobbies and even chores and jobs and kids and shopping and vacations and convenience and comfort and entertainment and any other distraction that we can possibly drum up all actually seem to come before him. If all of these you know, ducks are perfectly in a row, and if I feel like I've accomplished everything I need to accomplish, if I feel like I'm in a place where I'm perfectly satisfied with myself, as comfortable as I can be, then I will show up for God. Church, these are grave substitutions that we should not be making. I'm gonna pray this morning that you're as convicted as I am about Paul's words here. And I'm gonna pray that we all repent where repentance is. Is, is needed and we devote ourselves completely to Christ. No substitutions so that we aren't drawn away and taken captive by these things that offer us nothing in comparison to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word especially for giving us these lessons that we need to hear. Now, Lord, I'm, I'm convicted and I know that I fail here and my life does not always show, um, does not always show that Jesus is top priority. I take things that seem urgent, but they're not that important, and I, I do them, and I accomplish them, and I say that I'll come back, and I'll get the important work done after I get this thing that needs to be done, when in reality, it doesn't need to be done. I can't afford to flip that list upside down like that. I need it to be right side up. I need your son Jesus to be first in my life. And Father, I, I pray this morning that everyone here will be convicted by your word, not by any illustrations or jokes or stutters or um, anything that I've said, anything that I've done, but by your word and by what it says. Lord, help us to 
not just see these things, not just to say, boy, that's right, (laughs) but to actually repent. If we have to literally physically fall down on our knees, if we need to be in that posture to do it, God, God, send us there. Send us to the floor, repenting, turning from our ways and turning to your ways. Lord, help us to repent where repentance is needed, to be truly convicted so that we don't just have a change of mind, but we have a change of behavior. God, help us to live out your word in the way that that we see it written, not in the way that we feel, not in the way that is most uh, convenient for our current uh, way of life. Help us to, to live according to your word exactly the way it's written. We love you, give you all honor, all praise, all glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, if, you have, uh, if you're not in him, you know, we've talked a lot about in him, put a special emphasis on being in him. If you aren't uh, in him, I want to invite you to, to consider that. I want you to consider what he's done for you, why there's value in being in him. Um, I, I feel like the message probably pretty well took care of a, a lot of that. Um, we, we've touched on the fact that Jesus is everything we need. He makes us everything we need to be because of what he's done, because of the gospel, the good news that's right up here on the screen uh, in a, what is hopefully an easy to kind of burn into your mind uh, image, right? You've got the first arrow coming down that, that shows us that he came to this earth. What we talked about earlier, God coming in the flesh, all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form, Colossians 2, 9, right? Everything that is God, everything that God is supposed to be, everything that makes uh, uh, being God, it's all in him. And he put on flesh and dwelt among us. That's what uh, John 1.14 tells us. He came down here. God put on a body. The creator became part of his creation. And he didn't just come down and teach us how to be really good. He didn't just come down and say, here's what you're doing wrong. He did plenty of that. But he said, but ultimately what I'm here for is to, to pick up that tab, right? Ultimately, I'm here to die for your sins. I'm here because you can't fix this. I'm going to show you the right way. And I'm going to show you what you need to do. And I'm going to explain to you how you can uh, be helped from your hopeless situation. But I'm going to have to die for you because, you know, you can't do this yourself. I want you to follow me. But I'm going to die for you. He did that on the cross, right? And he was buried. The story is true. The facts are attested to. He was buried in a tomb, and he was only in there for a few days, right? Just as it was prophesied, in accordance with the scriptures, he rose three days later, and he lives forevermore. He now has his glorified body, right? What, what, what the Bible says, we will all receive. We're all going to get that glorified body. That's why the Bible calls him the first fruits of those risen from the dead, right? Because there's going to be more to come, and that can be you. Jesus died to pay the price for your sins and he rose so that you can have eternal life. Does that make sense to you? That's what the scriptures say. He died to pay the price for your sins because the wages of sin is death and he rose from the grave to prove that he can give you, he can deliver on the promise to give you eternal life. All you need to do is trust and obey. You need to believe the gospel 
and obey the gospel. The Bible says that there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, or with his angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 4, is this, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Romans 1.16 says that it's God's power to save. Now, how do we obey it? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, that we participate in the gospel. We, we have our own death, burial, and resurrection. And it's not just our own. It is a participation in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And where does that happen? What does Paul say in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4? He says it's in baptism. Don't you know that when you're baptized, Paul tells us, you're baptized into Christ's death. Sounds like getting into him to me. Into his death. Buried with him. There's the death and the burial already. And then raised to walk in newness of life. As, as Christ was raised from the dead, you are raised to walk in newness of life. We saw it in Colossians 2.12 today, didn't we? That the same power that worked to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that works in your baptism when you have faith in the working of God. When you believe with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that, that God raised Christ from the dead and has the power to, to raise you from spiritual death. And so he'll, he'll raise you from that spiritual death He'll make you spiritually alive. He'll forgive your sins. Acts 2.38 says that, that when we're baptized, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He'll do all that now, but he'll also mark you so that you'll have a physical resurrection one day. One day, you will be raised from death. You will be given that glorified body, and you will live forever. The question is, will you submit to it? Will you him haul around and ask questions and say, well, it doesn't sound, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel like it should be harder or I feel like it should be easier, right? We, we'll go either direction if we're just trying to wiggle out of something uncomfortable or will we just accept it? Will we believe it? Will we use some logic? I'm not asking you to jump off of a cliff and say, I think God's going to catch me. That's, that's called stupid. I'm asking you to use logic and to say, is this the most logical um, conclusion that the, the God is God, that this created world clearly requires a creator, that the way things are designed, you know, the way the, the, the grass dies and then it grows again and then the trees lose their leaves and they grow new ones, the, the fact that resurrection is hardwired into creation, it, it, does this show me that there's a designer or is it all just random chance and I should just eat, drink, and be merry? That choice is yours. That, that's your decision to make. And I want you to consider these things and I want you to ask any questions you have. After the service, I would love to talk with you. If you've got questions about any of this stuff, we can go a little deeper. We can get together on another day and you know, I can bring papers and we can look up scriptures and we can really dive into it. Whatever it, it takes because there's nothing more important than your salvation. Your individual salvation. So we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation here. Uh, when peace like a river and I want you to, to listen to the words that you're singing and I want this if you're a Christian or non-Christian to be listening uh, to these words and thinking about what do, you, what do I need to do what's my next step where do I need to go from here after hearing what I've heard considering what I've considered what more do I need to know what questions do I have or what am I ready to do right now